Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host and co-DM, Tom Lando, and with me as always is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. And it is episode 96, if I'm not mistaken. We're recording on the 8th of February, 2022. Uh... Just another episode, you know, we just keep on going. We got McGill over in the verse doing his sci-fi Firefly-inspired RPG. And meanwhile, I continue with my second campaign in a series, Al's Aces. We're deep in it now. Al's Aces are well past level 20. They've got epic level boons, and they're liberating the Deathlands that have stood as an affront to all things living in the world of Drail for so long. And uh, this episode, I'm going to be bringing... Well, so previously we had Operation uh, Clean Throat and Light Stomach, and you had some uh, ideas about what it would be next. But Is it going to be Dirty Operation, Butt? No. It's Operation Pregnant Insect. What? Oh, come on. <laughs> it's a nasty image, isn't it? Insects usually yeah, lay the- eggs so they don't get pregnant. It's pretty gross. I mean, I guess there are those those insects that like keep all their eggs on on their back. Yeah, but I think pregnancy is a mammalian phenomena, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, it's the whole thing. So, like a uh, mammalian bug—that's kind of scary. Maybe that's uh, like the Trimera pantera. Maybe I that's mar- that. Do marsupials get pregnant? I think they do, right? They must. Are marsupials not mammals? Are they? Are they? I thought they were their own thing. I I couldn't tell you. They we are not a science mammal-like. podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're a, we're a role playing games podcast. It's uh, pretty cool. Um, but you know what? I I've had this whole running theme lately of doing war stories, war RPGs, war RPG things things set in war i've been watching war shows and talking about war stuff and reading war stuff and playing war stuff well uh i found something perfect for the tavern and it's called war stories <laughs> war stuff it's gonna more be war stuff hey man it's like slayer said uh sport the war war support the sport is war total war Victory is to survive more. Um, yeah, yeah, well, so- my, my aunt calls her vacuum cleaner Slayer because it sucked since the 1980s. Hey, I, your aunt <laughs> sounds like a hater, McGill. <laughs> uh, hey, I, man, I saw Slayer. Man, I, I saw them on the Unholy Alliance tour with Children of Bodom. I saw Children of Bodom, too. Uh, not just there, but here in Ottawa as well. Our friend uh, Curtis Runstedler was there. And, what? Oh uh, my god. <laughs> since then, the singer of Children of Bodom and lead guitarist Alexi Leo has died. What a shame. One of my and old, uh, has Curtis Runstedler taken their place? No. Disappointed. That guy's busy doing uh, like uh, medieval German history or something. <laughs> uh, what the heck that guy's doing? Uh, I wonder if he listens to the podcast. He should. He should. Even though he doesn't play Dungeons and Dragons that I know of, he should listen anyway. 
I bet he plays um, D&D. What do you, what do you got? We we just busted out of prison in your game. Is that not true? Yeah, that's right. And if, and if Curtis doesn't play Dungeons and Dragons, we should drag him into it. We should drag him into it. Um Yeah, in the verse, the crew of the Phoenix, they successfully escaped from space prison. And this is the first session with them on the lam, fugitives wanted by the law. Uh, and so we'll we'll see what happens there, how they how they manage to sort of get their operation back up and running. And if they successfully dodge all the lawmen in that part of the galaxy. They don't even know that uh, actually the Alliance is completely disintegrated in the time they spent in prison. <laughs> Would have been a great idea, but uh, no, no, no. The Alliance is still fully operational. Uh, Haunch of all people should know that. Fully operational. Um, okay, well then, who do we want to start with? Did I start last time? I think I did with the, I feel the like big you escape. Did. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we really launched into it, so maybe I should be kicking off this time. Yeah, go kicking for it. Kicking off, well, I got, before we even get into the operation this time, there's something that's been going on in the background in my game world during all this stuff, during the liberation of Catatonia, that because it's just sort of in the background, it's like the setting is still, things are still happening elsewhere in the setting, but, you know, the story is not uh, focusing on that. We're not, the, the our POV is not there. Um, but I have these notes uh, that tell me basically, like, it's a summary of what happens in each operation, but then I also keep little notes of, like, what is going on elsewhere in the world. And uh, this brings me to something that, you know, it's like consequences of something small for them um, that has just like kept on stewing in the background. Do you remember um, back? It was like back when Chessie and Dax went on their first date, they got drunk and they f woke up and they'd like there so they had all these apples and they were dressed in tax collectors uniforms and then um they found out that they had like released some being of like some creature of darkness do you remember this at all uh i didn't remember the releasing of the creature of darkness but i did remember their their sort of bender where they woke up in tax collect uh, tax collector outfits yeah, one of the other things in the aftermath of that was, like, they had, um, like, one of them had, it was either them or Nestle had found, like, a weird puzzle box, and then one of them had found a key made of, like, pure shadow and oh, opened that's right. the, the puzzle the box The lament configuration. <laughs> and so then doing that had released some sort of being kind of like almost, I guess it was like the smoke monster from uh lost because it's just like this thing, this like weird sort of void being, uh, but then it got away and they had like notified the empire or at least uh, Dax or, or somebody they had been like, so this happened. I, I think it was Al Samusav actually, they would have told. 
Uh, but they hadn't been able to keep track of it at all. It had all just sort of gotten away from them while they were drunk. So the thing is that while, um, like, basically since then, um, so one thing I'll say is that Val and Draglin guy is still pursuing the Crimson Storm that is, uh, you know, somewhere in it, uh, Nadia, the Crimson Queen, the vampire that escaped, is like traveling in mist form through that storm. And so Valfar has continued to pursue that storm southward. Um, but in the meantime, uh, in the wastelands, which are sort of just, if you look at on WordPress, our WordPress page, uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com, you got the map of Drail up at the top and um, sort of to the northwest of the Deathlands, sort of in the interior of the curve of the, like the interior curve of the crescent that the continent is vaguely shaped to. Um, you have a place in the southern Deathlands, or a place in the southern Drail called the Wastelands before it meets the division between northern and southern Drail. And in the Wastelands, that is an area that, like, basically none of the campaigns have ever taken place there. The only time we've ever gone there was in Empok's Finest. The Nightside Eclipse had a harbor uh, set up there or a port set up there that the players managed to destroy early on. But in the background, that area sort of has its own sort of... It's, it's a bit of, like, a desert slash wild west kind of themed setting um and a lot of the population is like shifters like basically combinations of humans and like like animal humanoid races uh are very common there um there are other groups that are common there like hobgoblins and gnomes um but the the real thing that like sets it apart from the other areas of Drail is that it's sort of like a desert wild west uh, biome and uh, it's largely populated by people who are some combination of humanoid and animals. But um, they are currently locked in like a major civil war um, that unbeknownst to anyone really has been in the aftermath of whatever Alzaces released way back when on that bender. The strange darkness being that escaped on that night um, eventually went on to possess Inkpin, the gnome crime boss in Stormgate that we're familiar with. But that guy what? got exiled from Stormgate by... Uh, by Magnus from the first group, Empok's Finest, when he became Magnus Dwarf Belly, the he reincarnated as a goblin, became Magnus Dwarf Belly, started his own uh, sort of Judge Dread Paladin Order, the Cyclopean Order of Garador's Divine uh, Justice. So then he was called in to deal with the gang war in Stormgate with Inkpin, which led to him exiling Inkpin from Stormgate. Then Aku exiled Magnus, under suspicion that he was involved with the assassination of uh, some of Aku's priests, which was not Magnus, but we don't know who framed him. 
But then Inkpin had gone into exile and been basically possessed by this like void creature, um, which then using him as a vessel, he traveled into the wastelands and then started this huge faction that was uh, basically working for this void creature. And that faction is the Black Tusk tribe. And the Black Tusk tribe has been in civil war with the Red Fang tribe. Basically, the the Wastelands is split into these two factions with the Black Tusk tribe led by Inkpin, possessed by uh, this dark force. And meanwhile, the Red Fang uh, has been trying to fight against the tyranny of the Black Tusk, but the Black Tusk has started summoning uh, terrible monsters such as uh, the Wolf and Elk and the Trimera Pantera, uh, so the Trimera Pantera we know, but the wolf and elk is like a huge like wolf with antlers. It's like some sort of Nordic beast. Uh, it's also known as the Borfophagus. Um, <laughs> and, is that, uh, is that uh, an animal you made up? A monster of your own creation? Yes. Nice. Uh, and then, although it's also what I call my dog, is Borfophagus. Although I think Borfagus or something, Borfophagus? is like a like in extinct like sort of primordial creature that is like sort of the genetic ancestor between like a wolf a hyena and a pig basically or maybe even a bear i don't know it's kind of like a chubby attack dog from prehistoric times and its Wait name means gluttonous eater is this is this the origin of the the joke about the the inn of the howling wolf that the sign looks like a pig? No, no, the origin of that I've explained is was a Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum song. Right, but this feels this feels sample. like this feels like like it must be connected somehow. I mean the Barophagus is just a straight up real thing. <laughs> now I'm looking it up. It's your dog. Uh Barophagine. Uh, yeah, the Barophagine of three subfamilies within the Canid family. Uh, Barophagine called bone crushing dogs were endemic to North America. Uh, and yeah, their name Barophagus, I think, means uh, gluttonous eater. And uh, I like, I like bone crushing dog, I like all that stuff. I like to call my dog. Yeah, well well anyway, so whatever the case, there's a sort of uh war civil war being fought between animal people in the wastelands uh where the sort of war machines are actually giant summoned uh kaiju effectively like the Trimera Pantera and the Borfophagus and whatnot. Um not that the Borfophagus is a giant kaiju thing, the Borfophagus was just a a dog a, a, a prehistoric dog thing um but yeah so this all this to say that there's just like there is this civil war going on that most of drail is so focused on the liberation of catatonia or at least the drailic army and the empire are that like this isn't really getting any screen time but it is happening um another thing to say is that in that civil war eventually another um 
faction uh, springs up allied with the Red Fang, which is the Whitehorn tribe, uh, which is basically a sort of faction of ally, like similar animal people from different areas who have all come to sort of oppose the tyranny of the Black Tusk tribe. So all this to say, there's an animal, there's a humanoid animal civil war happening in the West, wastelands that's sort of off screen and doesn't really pertain to what's going on in our campaign, but it's happening. And it's vaguely the end result of like a long series of events involving that box. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, sort of. It's it's just like the creature that they released that what it went on to do was sort of migrate to the wastelands and then start this um this conflict by way of uh possessing inkpin who was exiled in the first place now i'm really curious and you don't have to answer this yet if it's coming down the the pike in your adventure but i'm really curious if there's going to be a moment where the players are say confronted by possessed inkpin and he's like i'm the monster you released from the box and then they all scratch their heads and go like, what monster? We don't remember because as as we know, they have notoriously short memories. No, I mean, this uh, this just like never really came back to them. Like uh, they basically they'll see they, they got to see a sort of like uh, epilogue cut scene at the end where they saw uh, they they learned that this had happened, that Inkpin was in fact the vessel for uh the dark tranquility which is a metal band that uh whose name i took for this strange void creature that's pretty that's that's really something i like that they at least get to know about it stuff keeps happening elsewhere uh so that's happening in the in the wastelands meanwhile having breached the capital city in catatonia of decima uh, the bulk of the Nightside Eclipse defenders in Decima that survived that initial breach of the Draelic army have been, uh, have been found to have retreated underground into the sewers from which they've been launching these sporadic raids against the occupying Draelic forest in the city. And because the Draelic army is still laying siege to the city's industrial district, which is still holding out against the attackers... Al's aces are the ones who are sent down into the sewers to investigate this subterranean force. And uh, so the Decima sewers, that's what we're covering in this operation. Um, for the map, I used the Temple of the Crushing Wave from the Prince of the Apocalypse. And that's what I based this operation on. And also notable is that at this point, the Drow King of Catatonia, the vampire Black Shear, has still not been located in the city. They've they hit the main district, they've broken into the city, they're laying siege to the industrial district, but there's still no sign of the king himself. So obviously that's a villain that they gotta bring to justice sooner or later. They gotta find him first. So descending into the sewers... They reveal, uh, it's revealed that the complex beneath the city is pretty spacious. Uh, it's got these wide canals for water passage and several facilities constructed around them. Uh, immediately upon traveling through a drainage passage to enter the sewers, the party is faced with a variety of the Deathlands hostile subterranean residents. For example, we got troglodytes, which would much later in the next campaign be identified as belonging to the Hellspittle tribe within the Deathlands. 
We got monsters like the Chool. Do you do you know the Chool, McGill? Heck yeah, I do. I've been using the Chool. I was even. It's so funny. Uh, I almost picked uh, a write up on the Chool for the tavern today because I've been using them in the campaign that I'm running. I've talked about. Uh, you know, uh, the Ab- the flying tower of the Aboleth sovereignty is threatening yeah. the world. And uh, upon the arrival of the flying tower of Zifu, uh, the earth splits up and all sorts of weird sort of crustacean and insect-like creatures come out. And among them are Chul. So those players have been fighting with the Chul quite a bit. Yeah, so uh, can you describe what a chul is for the listener? It's like a dire lobster. <laughs> yeah, it's like a monster crustacean monster. Yeah. It's uh, all crazy. So we got this uh, sort of subterranean amphibious lair of the sewer, and we got chuls, troglodytes, we got water weirds, we got shadows, we got dark mantles. You know dark mantles? I've also been using them. They're the the flying squid slash octopus that that eject inky clouds into the air, right? Well, yeah, and then they also they grab your head. Yeah, and then they jump they, on your head. They swallow <laughs> up your head. They just can't see anything. But also, we got a return of something that we haven't seen since the infestation beneath Goblin Town at the end of Empok's Finest. Can you name a unique creature that we remember from that in that that uh those old times? Gosh, was uh, it an invisible stalker? No, no, we've seen those more recently. These are the mutated uh you know the piercer. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. You had a piercer. What was its mutation? It was like a bouncing Betty piercer. Basically, That's right. piercers typically they come up they, from below. They, they hang. Well, yeah, like piercers typically they hang from the ceiling and fall on your uh, on to their prey. But these ones they can spring on back up. So they got these mutated jumping piercers that haven't been seen since the end of the first campaign, man. Uh, so these guys are back. Another creepy thing. They're they're basically like they're sort of. I guess the Draelic equivalent of like the barnacles from Half-Life, you know, they're the creepy thing you find underground when you're trying to go through a dungeon. That's all kind of flooded and dank. That's my reading anyway. Um, and then, so the players fight through these guys in the drainage path that takes them into the sewers. Then they get to, uh, uh, a landing, but, and, they, I'm sure they would have liked to receive a break upon hitting dry land. Once they hit the landing, of course, the enemy doesn't let them have it easily. That's where the players face some of the actual like enemy uh, defense force in the form of four Reavers, which, again, I'll mention are a unit from Prince of the Apocalypse. They're basically like a water cult unit. But more generically, they are a really useful, like lightly armored uh, com- like humanoid combatant. It's like they're they're not as generic as bandits, but they're like a cool sort of uh, light armor kind of soldier that you can pit your uh, players against. They're accompanied by a warlock who's got the classic 
Eldritch Serpents, which is that invocation I came up with that uh, adds a grappling effect to your Eldritch Blast. And then we've also got a spy with them on the landing, but then also in the water to further deter intruders, we've also got a trained hunter shark. So players fight their way through the drainage path. They get to the landing and then there's already there's dang shark. Gotta fight them if they try to get through the water. And then right on the landing, there's all these enemy uh, soldiers. So they managed to take that landing. They find the sewer complex. They found it defended like this they've also find that it's festooned with nightside eclipse symbols to boot so the party readies themselves to clear yet another nightside eclipse hideout in classic fashion but let me tell you what they did not expect mcgill is that soon they would be engaged in a sort of subterranean small-scale naval skirmish within the sewers one in which they would face not one but two Dragon turtles. Oh, wow. you know dragon turtles, man. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're. They are like giant sea turtles crossed with dragons, right? Yeah, you know, uh, in uh, the five E campaign, uh, Tomb of Annihilation, they have a dragon turtle in that. That's named uh, Amareg, I think. Is Gamera backwards? Ah, that's perfect. Yeah, Gamera is like the perfect example of a dragon turtle. We're on a a real uh, kaiju spree here, actually. A friend of mine was just in the Galapagos Islands and went scuba diving and saw a whole bunch of sea turtles and was making jokes about how they look like dragon turtles. Them big ones? Yeah, they're really big ones. So... Coming to a big, wide area, which was sort of part massive natural cavern and part huge cistern, players found themselves in the nest of two horrific dragon turtles resembling the monstrous nightside eclipse dragon they had seen in their time travel adventures. So these are like horrifying, mutated, experimented upon by the nightside eclipse dragon turtles. Worse still, as they did battle with the two dragon turtles, additional foes beset them in the form of giant octopi serving the two dragon turtle as dragon turtles as well as a small nightside eclipse boat assault which was launched to their flank. So basically they're fighting these two dragon turtles. They got giant octopi coming out of the water beneath them while they fight these two dragon turtles and then these freaking boats come up behind them they're full of lizard men and nightside eclipse soldiers so they're basically fighting boatloads of enemies while they fight these huge monsters while they fight these giant octopi beneath them it's insanity uh the who could have seen this coming the boats have the lizard men uh, loyal to the Nightside Eclipse in them, who lend their amphibious abilities to the fight. Hey, I wait, was that sarcastic? I don't think anybody could have seen this coming. A friggin' who would have known that they had boats down in the sewers? It was only sarcastic in that you had introduced this twist by saying they couldn't have seen it coming. You were like the, the oh yeah yeah I, I, Alza- I see Alzaces they could not have predicted that they, they would soon find see themselves this coming. exactly and so you said and I went who could have seen this coming? Uh, luckily, whatever foul process the enemy had inflicted upon the dragon turtles had apparently left their breath weapons highly ineffective, 
and by focusing on the dragon turtles before dispatching the enemies in the boats, some of which made further attacks from the backs of the dragon turtles, uh, the players gained a highly unique prize from this battle. Each one of them gained... Can you guess? Gained... Let me see here. Highly unique prize. Was it like a weapon made out of the piercers? No. No. Um, unique prize. What did they stumbled upon when they faced these dragon turtles? Boats? No, I said uh, they... They came to a sort of massive, a sort of thing that was part natural cavern and part cistern, but was revealed to be. Oh, um, hang on, hang on. Let's see, there was it was the nightside eclipse dragons, right? They look like the. The dragon turtles look like the knights. Well, and there's two dragon turtles hanging out here. Right. I'll tell you what it is, Miguel. What is it? It's a nest. Oh, interesting. So each of them gains a dragon turtle egg, which would go on to hatch in the next campaign. Ah, in the next uh, campaign, not even in this campaign. Yeah, and moreover... Just recently, I established for all the players that all the eggs have hatched now. So wherever Arakendor is in Drail now, he's got a dragon turtle newly hatched, and Chessia Nestle as well. Neat. And so did they did they kill the, the dragon turtle parents though? Yes. They were all okay. monstrous and mutated. Probably better that they, you know, be adopted after you know, otherwise they end up with, like, mutant zombie parents or something. Right. Uh, so, uh, trolls patrolling the canal walkways proved to themselves to be another concern while the players explored the complex, as well as a considerable number of ghasts. Uh, once again, the players found the telling drowning pools, which were used to ritually create Lacedon ghouls, the fact that the ghouls were now gassed spoke to the demonic activities of the defenders as the party had already faced a vrock when battling the drow vampire bladesinger at the end of the previous operation, as you may well remember, the big bird demon. Uh, evidently, the enemy was calling in abyssal allies, which is not unheard of, because uh, back in Empok's Finest, you may remember that when the party was rescuing the goblin princess Remy, on that occasion, the Nightside Eclipse was also known to deploy demons such as the Barl Gura, uh, providing sort of counterweight to the Empok's alliance with Mephisto. Um, other points in the op were more like what the players would be expecting. Uh, we got plenty of those Reavers, pirates, spies, Nightside priests. Uh, you know, they ran into guard posts, um, a barracks where the enemies emerged to fight them. Uh, similarly, dens of trolls and lizardmen, sort of the area where the trolls and the lizardmen were normally housed, uh, and even the lair of a sea hag guarded by two ogres. Um, at one point, they also found a magic fountain guarded by a pair of Nothics, which granted them the benefits of a short rest instantaneously upon drinking from it. Uh, there was obviously some investigation of the fountain before they 
decide to drink from it. But uh, Chessy, you know, considering they were in a sewer, Chessy accepted pretty quickly that the water and the magic that she was detecting from it were actually safe. Um, but uh, fact is, there was no trickery going on there. The fact is that the enemy force needed to have a clean supply of water in their uh, sewer hideout. So this was how they got it. Magic fountain. Got to drink something. Can't drink sewer water. Unless maybe, like, the ghouls and stuff probably could. But they probably don't even need water. Anyway. All along the way, they're getting gold payouts from the Nightside Eclipse forces they take down. That sea hag they ran into had some magic treasure. So they she had a potion of hill giant strength, a potion of fire resist, and a plus one longsword that glowed when within 120 feet of dragons. Uh, had the dragon turtles been alive when they found it, it would have been glowing right then and there. Um, but also checking the current Empok armory, I can confirm that this sword is still in the armory at Omega base has a dragon bone hilt and not only glows, but also gets warm when in the presence of dragons within 120 hmm. feet. Uh, proceeding deeper into the sewer complex, the party discovered the typical facilities of an enemy base, such as the kitchens and an armory crawling with cultists and all the enemy types they'd fought thus far, where the enemy made a desperate stand to keep their critical strategic resources. So basically they get to the armory and there we're fighting cultists, reavers, pirates, warlocks, priests, trolls, ogres, sea hags, freaking lizardmen, troglodytes, all the things everything man you know i was thinking about this like last time i was talking about you know i was like i want to have a game where it's like the i know the squad is over in the forest and then they got a tank up on the hill and an anti-tank gun off to the side and then there's guys in another forest and it's like i'm basically doing that here it's just like instead of tanks it's trolls instead of anti-tank guns it's gonna be you know uh i don't know a warlock or something you know, it's it's the same thing. It's what I was saying about, like, having a certain variety of enemies is, like, uh, you know, in world. if this was a World War II RPG, that variety would be, like, you know, a guy with an anti-tank gun, a sniper, a squad of regular guys, a squad of submachine gun guys, and then, like, a tank, and maybe an artillery piece. But this is just, like, the Dungeons & Dragons equivalent. So, you know, I've mentioned all these things, shadows those piercer mutants, all that sort of thing. And just sprinkle them all across and then have a big combat with all of them. Show what you've learned in the armory at the end. Um, beyond these lay the true enemy HQ, where one of the oldest known vampiric enemies of the Empok. You may remember his name, Augustus. They've been fighting him ever since Empok's finest. Do you remember this guy? He's one of the ones that was based on the guys from Mulan. Right, right. I don't remember He's which the one, one with, the... The, with the bow. Is that him? No, no, no. Uh, that guy was Weasel. This guy is Augustus. He has the mohawk and the nose ring. Gotcha. He's a big brawler dude. Uh, but Augustus reveals himself to be commander of the force in the sewer. So after all this time, he finally fights the Empok for the last time, assisted by a handful of lizard folk and a Hetzru. Now we've talked about this demon type before. It's the big uh, stinky toad one. Pretty sure you uh, had yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I used the in Greyhawk. 
Yeah. And uh, Augustus has the aid of a cursed trident called Tide Rebel. A reminder of that repeated phrase, the Rebellion of the Tides, which is a password encountered earlier. And uh, once Augustus is defeated, this is an obvious prize for Aura Stormblast Kendor as a cleric of Poseidon. So Augustus is slain and Aura gets a cool-ass magic trident from him. Um, despite this final fight, however, it was made clear that the enemy was even in further entrenched underground beyond this point as a passage leading further on was guarded by a mesoloth, which is a type of, uh, kind of bug humanoid, uh, pseudo demon mercenary, uh, and more nightside eclipse priests and cultists. So obviously if they're guarding that passage further in, then there's more to fight. But uh, here is where we ended this operation with the defeat of Augustus. And most pressing at the end of this was that Aura Stormblast Kendor had uh, attuned a Tide Rebel, which was cursed, bore a curse oh. of greed, which soon saw the cleric pinching every piece of gold he could in the name of Poseidon's cause, become one of these uh, millionaire televangelists only for Poseidon. That's pretty funny, though, because uh, I feel like your players are already pretty flush with, like, gold and goodies and loot and resources. So to have him be yeah, extra greedy is pretty funny on top of it all. Well, they were never motivated by greed. They just had all these payouts. And now right. it's the first time that, like, now someone is actually really invested in it is, like, Arakendor, who is usually a pretty jovial, friendly guy, now suddenly has this, like character flaw which is that he's uh he's got an inherent greed which uh makes him uh you know he always uses the excuse that it's for his church of poseidon but uh every chance he gets he he makes sure he gets his cut tide rebel the trident was a plus one trident that did one d plus one d8 cold damage gave the wielder cold resistance and also had the benefits of a staff of healing in addition to the Curse of Greed, the wielder eventually finds themselves growing barnacles on their body, which led to Aura having a somewhat more appropriate sea goliath look for his, his sort of uh, Poseidon theme. With uh, So he gets like, uh, he ha as a goliath, he has like rocky sort of parts of his body that look like they're stone rather than like uh, skin. And on those parts, he now has like barnacles growing basically. Um, and the original weapon that this is based on was from uh, Princes of Apocalypse and is a trident called Drown. Has all the same uh, features that I described. Turns him into a member of Davy Jones's crew. Sort of, yeah, basically. But it's really appropriate because he's a priest of Poseidon. I mean, mm -hmm. couldn't ask for a better uh, magic item for him. So now we got Chessy has Skyfang. The uh, short sword with the curse of unreliability makes people flighty, flaky perhaps even. Meanwhile, Arakendor has gotten his magic item, Tide Rebel, the trident that makes him greedy, makes him grow barnacles. Is there a metal band called Tide Rebel? No, but Rebellion of the Tides is uh, an album by... Uh, Dismal Euphony? Yeah, Autumn Leaves, Rebellion of the Tides. Autumn Leaves? Oh, that all scans. Yeah, yeah, it's all connected, man. 
<laughs> Autumn leaves use the password at Rebellion of the Tides. Oh, oh my this god! This guy had Tide Rebel. Now you know what I want to happen, Tom. I want one of your players to come and visit you, and the two of you are just like hanging out in your room, and they have a, a usual suspects moment where they're like looking around and they see like <laughs> a stack of CDs, and they're like, "Wait a minute, Autumn leaves." wait and then like they look somewhere else and they see something else and it all comes together that the entire I, campaign I guess in a way i am usual suspecting it just you really are long white long-winded metal themed manner <laughs> they could totally there could totally be a moment like that where all it takes is like one glimpse at your you know itunes library or something and it all comes together the thing is that I've already been pretty upfront about all these oh, yeah. things. Like, I don't think they need to usual suspect it. No, but I don't, you know, do they, do they recognize the depth? Do they recognize how far it goes? Because I could I see no it idea. being like a surface level thing. Like, oh yeah, Tom names his operations after metal albums. But then the closer they look, the more it's revealed. It's like, oh, like every aspect of this thing is, uh, is involved. It's metal all the way down. <laughs> meanwhile. Meanwhile, over in the verse, uh, we left off last time sort of at the beginning of this session because there was one thing I wanted to mention. You know, they had escaped. They, they pulled off their big escape from space prison uh, the can with the help of the crew of the Cantankerous. Both ships went in opposite directions so as not to draw too much attention to each other. And the crew of the Phoenix decided... We got to be friends after all. Yeah. And the crew of the Phoenix decided that uh, what they were actually going to do is fly inwards towards the core of the galaxy and hopefully, like, slip into the crowds there. Go to a more populated area so that they can just sort of hide among the throngs of people. And also, like, going to a more populated area is the kind of thing that maybe the Alliance wouldn't think that they would do. They'd think they'd want to go someplace just more. Just crazy enough to work. Exactly. It's also one of the, uh, the core is closer than anywhere else. So they decide, we're just going to head on in. And they, they set off towards... A, uh, a planet called Persephone that is like a Coruscant-style planet, crowded with cities. And then there's a moon that orbits Persephone called Pelorum that's like a pleasure planet. It's got like, you know, uh, it's a resort world full of like green spaces and lakes and fancy hotels and restaurants that serve oat cuisine. And I, I wanted to sort of treat uh, the world of... Polorum, kind of like um, just any sort of like tropical village or, or town that you might see in a movie where there are like these big hotels and like pleasure yachts and stuff like that. But there are also the locals who, you know, they live in maybe a more rundown part of the, the planet and there are shanty towns around and things like that. So I wanted sort of a mix of of you could call it like high and low society you have the snobs and aristocrats and then you have the more rough and tumble locals trickle down economics man yeah and so well, max Payne says no wait max Payne didn't say that but they so say they've... it in max Payne. <laughs> uh 
so they're they head in towards Pelorum, and their plan is they're going to get the ship fixed up, and then they're going to hightail it back to Ezra, which is closer to the outer rim in a more lawless territory, and they got people there who owe them a bunch of favors, of course, and they'll be able to hide out there more easily sort of out from out of the range of the prying eyes of the alliance. So back where they started, basically? No, no, uh not I guess it all was the Cleaver first. Yeah, but... Cleaver Cleaver on Verbena was first. Ezra is where they uh they hung out with uh Peterson, Grant Peterson. They went to the soiree there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and Haunch found got trapped in a mine. Um Oh, jeez. When yeah, so they it, they want to get back there. It was, it was sort of like two stops before where they were caught, because um, that's where they had gotten the job to deliver the dogs. And so uh, their plan is we're going to get fixed up, and then we're going to go hide out on Ezra. And the, so the first thing they do, you know, they fly down, and I, I set the scene. It's like, you know, one of those helicopter shots from a movie set in, like, Hawaii, where they're, they're golden beaches and these shining clusters of buildings and the sun is, you know, reflecting off the water. There are five-star hotels and birds fly past the windshield of their ship. Can I play Tropico? Uh, no, but, you know, it's in my games library, so I've been meaning to play it. Is that any good? Yeah, I feel like that thing's in a bundle every used to be real easy to get that game yeah tropico I mean, 3 right. it's, is it's what a i good, it's a good uh sim you know it, it's like sim cuban dictator nice you know it's it, they, all this reminds me of tropico well from what i know of tropico it's definitely the vibe i was going for like sunny kind of tropical i mean i guess the island from like far cry 3 is also kind of the the oh yeah you know that kind of that kind of environment and so they're flying the from Far Cry One. They're flying down over this lake, and uh, in the distance, they can on the far side of this lake, they can see a ship rental and repair yard. And Daniel points out and goes like, "There, we're gonna go. We'll go there, get the Phoenix fixed up, and uh, while we're here, we're gonna try and access the Cortex and see if we can just withdraw all the credits that we have available to us." And pour them into, like, getting the ship a makeover, getting ourselves some supplies, and, like, covering our tracks, basically. Erase, you know, pres- our, our presence as best we can. And uh, so, right away, Chow is like, alright, well, I'm going to hop on the Cortex now that we're sort of in range of all these other places. And basically, he's like, I'm going to use the open Wi-Fi so that they can't trace us easily and get on the Cortex and start transferring all the funds. But they realize that the Phoenix, uh, when it was a crumpled heap in the junkyard on Pegasus, uh, the Cortex uplink and sensor array has just been destroyed. So it's another thing that they're, they're going to have to repair. But not only that, they're going to have to find some way, like a terminal somewhere they can access the Cortex to do this. And so the plan is that they're going to land and they've got to get Minerva is going to have to smooth talk the mechanic into starting the repairs with no credits available up front. And then while that while the repairs are going on, 
uh, Daniel, Song, and Chow are going to go and find a Cortex uplink and try to get their funds. So they park at this ship repair yard and get off and immediately just start smooth talking this guy. They all use aliases. Daniel Stack calls himself Daryl Strong. Minerva calls herself Matilda, stuff like that. And uh, my uh, cyberpunk group, their favorite thing is trying on new alien aliases. It's like all they do. <laughs> like friend Technopolis, uh, someone cool, Johnny Cool Shades, Spice Cayenne. <laughs> nice. Those are good. Those are good aliases. Literally, the guy who plays Reverend Rolling Stock just like has a huge list of cyberpunk aliases that he's always adding to. So the mechanic is a guy named Jeb, who I fan cast with character actor Dick Miller, who uh, you might not know his name, but you sure know his face. He's, a, he's got sort of like a bulldoggy kind of a face, and he pops up in everything. He's been in like every Joe Dante movie that's ever made. And uh, so the crew introduced themselves and saying like, we need, you know, to get repairs, see the sights get the ship flying again, fix our Cortex uplink, and all basically all that. And Jeb's like, okay, well, that's going to cost you. Do you have any money? Daniel goes like, uh, Miss Matilda here handles all our business transactions, so you want to speak with her. And while Minerva is smooth-talking this guy, everybody else sort of steps a short ways away, and they lay out the plan. So the first order of business is to get on the Cortex and see how much money they actually have left. Caesar, Gale, and Minerva are going to stay with uh, the ship and oversee the repairs. Gale is going to sort of act like muscle in case anything comes up. And of course, Minerva is in charge of just charming this guy so that they can get the repairs underway without any upfront fees. And then Chow, Song, and Daniel are going to find an uplink terminal and stock up on supplies in town as well. And I used some... Uh, diplomacy stuff for Minerva to smooth talk this guy uh, using that mid-level sort of the the mid-level challenge rating for one of those diplomacy table things you know the attitude tables for diplomacy I mean uh, you've talked about them a lot I don't use them ever but uh, you know well I don't I don't always use them but this is one of those cases where I used it sort of as the basis for a challenge so that Minerva can make these diplomacy checks and then, you know, improve his attitude or it goes up, it goes down and just sort of use it as almost like a dice rolling mini game just to sort of give her something that she can do while engaging with this guy. And uh, Daniel, so while the negotiations are, or sorry, as soon as the negotiations about the repairs are done, Daniel asks him, you know, an asteroid took out uh, my long-range sensor array and my cortex axis. Can you tell me where there's a public ter terminal? And he directs them, oh yeah, down the road, there's a trading post just past the uh, clump of Nakamura fronds. You can't miss it. And uh, he goes, I got a hollow map too. Gives them the map, and Song, Chow, and Dan will all get on the hover mule and head out towards the trading post. And the trading post is uh, sort of a Borderlands-inspired kind of a thing where uh, it's like a cargo container that has been converted 
into a, a kiosk slash outdoor cantina. And there are no vehicles out front, no customers. And behind the counter is this guy with his eyes closed. And he's got like surfer hair and a floral collared shirt. But then as they approach the counter, they look down and they can see that the lower half of his body is connected to a big metal arm. And he's like an android torso on an arm that's sticking out of the wall. And uh, so this is like an automated cantina and then as soon as they notice he's an android his eye snaps open and he does the claptrap thing is a welcome traveler to the blue sun trading post on polorum east quadrant how can i help make your stay on our moon a little better daniel goes like i'll have some warm sake three cups and leans on the counter there's a cortex terminal uh that's sort of folds up into the wall so it lowers down a bit like a drawbridge Chow connects while Song and Daniel drink their drinks, and uh, they quickly realize that their accounts have all been locked. They don't actually have any credits oh, to no. their name. All their funds have been seized. Writing checks their mouths can't cash. Yep. And uh, as this is going on, Daniel is watching. There's like basically like a TV with a news feed on, and... Orp, orp. Exactly. And so the he looks up and he notices that the, the newsfeed is running a story about how penal colony inmates offered uh, suffered a grim demise as a group of prisoners made a daring escape, detonating all of the inmates' tracking devices in the midst of a riot. The criminals hijacked uh, the famed war hero General Rajovic's personal ship and killed the general in the process. And this is where they learn that the head guard is a retired general in the alliance as well. So, oh my god. Yeah, so they're in way deep. The video shows the security footage of Minerva shooting the general in the face, oh and then it gets blurred out, you know, with a censored sort of mosaic as his brains splatter across the floor. And then uh, the, oh, the announcer is like, the Alliance is offering a significant reward for anyone who can provide information about the fugitives and has placed a bounty on their heads, dead or alive. And then it moves on. It's springtime in Verbena, and the Alliance is offering settlers the chance of a lifetime. Blah, 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 blah. And Daniel goes like, uh, okay, well, we should probably get out of here and uh, back on the ship as quickly as we can. Downs his drink. And uh, it tr- and he's like, so how are our funds? And Song and Chow are like, we got nothing. And so Daniel goes like, we need to get the hell out of here immediately. And the three of them book it back to the garage. And when they get, when they get there, uh, Jeb and Caesar are working on the ship. And they're like, the progress of repairs is coming along well. I did a repair check skill challenge with Caesar. And then some craft electronics checks to construct a new sensor array. Jeb is only assisting like aiding the roles he's not actually doing any repairs because he's more concerned with impressing minerva and gail is just like killing time by his uh, on his own he's left to his own devices uh, as i recall he what is haunch doing? yeah what is haunch doing i guess he's probably hanging out at the uh at the repair yard unless you say or, otherwise unless i've uh perhaps gotten very into my new hobby of uh, model spaceships. <laughs> I've been making a model of the Phoenix. There you go. He's making a model of the Phoenix out of scrap. 
And uh, as this I is, mean, can I? I think he picked up a kit. Oh, right? okay. An Osprey now class, he's just like on the ship. <laughs> yeah, a model Osprey okay. class ship that he's painting to look like the Phoenix, which is gonna be pretty funny because, of course, they're giving the Phoenix a whole new paint job to conceal its identity. And I mentioned it's this for the memory. Uh, I mentioned this last time, but uh, they decided that they were going to do the conversion, pull the trigger on the conversion, making the Phoenix into like a flying saloon. And because of the transporting of the dogs, you know, it was a, a sort of a madcap adventure they went on and the whole ship still kind of smells like dog. They decide that it will no longer be the Phoenix. It will be known as the kennel. And, uh, they they even paint on the the nose of the ship. They have a new logo, which is uh, a dog, kind of based on Allegro, Minerva's dog. And while while this conversion is going on, I was having Jeb ask questions to all of them and making that sort of like a mini bluff check skill challenge too. So like, oh, what planet are you from originally? Do you have family on Persephone? Do you like big ships? I've I've never done open mic at an academy. <laughs> and then uh, I would note down their answers and I, you know, I was doing sort of cutaways between the two groups, one group going into town, the other group staying. So I'd ask them these questions and have them make bluff checks to sell their answers and then note down their answers. And then when I cut back to them, I would do a follow up uh, and see if they could maintain their answers as well. And then finally, Song, Chow, and Dan will return, and sirens can be heard in the distance, and uh, they get off of the mule and just draw their guns on Jeb, and he goes like, what is going on here? Who are you people? And uh, so, uh, you know, sirens in the distance, Daniel, everybody's starting to panic. They're like, the, the cops are on to us, so they force... Uh, Jeb to just sort of lift a landlock off their ship and they all pile on and they're they're gonna beat a hasty retreat and they fly off and uh, I this is one of those rare times where I did a funny cutaway just for amusement because usually you stick totally close to the player's perspective but so they fly off and then I just had a little uh, but scene. I, I love that time that Hudson Kane saw you guys uh, saw the party fly by Remember that? Yeah, exactly. Um, but in this one, they leave, and then two cops on hover bikes pull up to Jeb's garage, and is like, you know, was anybody here who was in the who was at the trading post down the road in the past hour or so? Jeb goes, yeah, they just made off, and the cops are like, ah, oh, they forgot to pay for their drinks, so they were. <laughs> The fuzz, ah. the fuzz hadn't caught on to them. They just forgot to pay. They didn't even forget. They couldn't. They had no money. So they just stole their drinks and ran away. Ah. And so... Yeah, that reminds me of... Uh, you ever play Indigo Prophecy? Yeah. That nonsense. That, um... You know, it's you get so flustered trying to cover up your murder, then you try to leave the place, and they're like, hey, you gotta pay for your meal. It's like, god damn it! Yeah. <laughs> That's just drawing more attention to me. Hey, you, come here. And you're like, oh, no, they're on to us. You got to pay for your meal. Um, so the kennel, the newly named kennel, flies off, breaks Atmo, heads out into space. And their plan is to head back to Ezra 
and more specifically is they need work. And so they go like, we need to find someone who we can work with who doesn't mind like working with criminals. And so their first thought is we're going to ask Niska if he has any jobs for us. And that back to Niska. And that is where this session drew to a close. Just a little stop off on a pleasure planet, a little scare with the local authorities and they got their ship back up and running, but they got no money. Ah, Jingus. Dingus Dangus. Tavern time? Tavern time. Yeah, I got a I got a good one for the tavern. I got a big one for the tavern. Let's have it. What do you got for the tavern? Uh, I got uh, the thing I'm bringing to the tavern is from the D&D behind the screen subreddit, uh, the praises of which I have sung before. And this user has created some fun rules for making camping more exciting. You know, when your party makes camp for the night to take a long rest, maybe we can spruce it up just a little bit. And I thought these were some pretty fun rules for doing so. All right. Uh, how about you hit me with that first, just so sure. I can sort of track the time from when I start. Sure. So um, <clears throat> the user is Dutch Enterprises on the D&D Behind the Screen subreddit, Camping Rules. And so uh, the way it works is each time the party camps in the wilderness, you you basically roll to see if an encounter occurs. This guy has, I mean, what I would suggest is, you know, take these rules and sort of adjust them however you see fit. Uh, I'm just going to read the way he's got them, but here's an example of what I mean. <clears throat> he has it that you roll a d20 when the party camps in the wilderness, and on a six or lower, an encounter happens. But I would say adjust the range however much you want. When the party camps for the night, each party member can take one action on a camping task, and the tasks are split into two categories, simple or proficient. Uh, anyone can perform simple tasks, but a PC has to be proficient in the associated skill to perform one of the proficient tasks, and those tasks can change the, uh, the, the type of encounter that you would get, basically. Um, the lower, so the, the number that you're rolling uh, to determine if an encounter occurs is called the encounter threshold. The lower below the encounter threshold that you roll, the harder the encounter. So, you know, if you roll a one, it's going to be a really hard encounter, whereas if you roll like a six, right on six, it's not going to be that difficult. And then anything above a six is just no encounter at all. Some non-combat encounters that he has an, as an example. They're encounters designed to test your players without involving combat. Sorry, are there separate tables for non-combat and combat encounters? Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, combat encounters... Let me just see here. These are the camping tasks. Combat encounters are really just like a fight ensues, and then you you determine... Uh, what kind of combat you want to be running. I'm trying to find if he has a specific full table. Doesn't look like he does, 
but here are some examples of non-combat encounters. A goblin sneaks in and attempts to steal rations. An owl hooting keeps them up at night. A fickle hag curses a party member to dance all night long. Different environments and the naturally occurring danger therein can increase or decrease the encounter threshold. If something is safe, then it's a minus two to the threshold, so you basically you have to roll four or below for an encounter to happen. Uh, dangerous cursed landscapes add two. Lethal landscapes like dungeons, crawling with creatures, or other planes of existence add four. So if you're on, if you're in like an abyssal plane, uh, it's like 50-50 on a d20 if you have an encounter. Um, it looks like, yeah, I guess, I guess he doesn't really, uh, all he does for the combat encounters is, uh, the, the lowest category is a non-combat encounter, and then it just increases based on difficulty. So a medium encounter, uh, an easy, medium, hard, deadly, or lethal encounters are just sort of the different types of combats. I guess you could use something like Kobold Fight Club to generate whatever, uh, enemies you need for that kind of encounter yeah that sounds about right um and then yeah there are the modifiers based on the different types of environment and then there are these camping tasks that can sort of change the way these things work so simple tasks these are the ones that anybody can do take watch this will be split up between two watches the first and second if an encounter happens your perception rolls will determine if there is a surprise, like an ambush or not. If you fail your, uh, your perception rolls that are typically opposed with an enemy's stealth roll, it means the enemies get an ambush. They get a surprise round. If, they, if the players succeed on perceiving them, nobody gets a surprise. And if the players perceive the enemy by more than five, like by five or more above their stealth roll then they get the drop on the enemy, and they can ambush them first. And do a reverse ambush. Exactly. Um, you can hide the camp, make a stealth check to determine if the camp is well hidden. A success sub subtracts two from the encounter threshold. Every plus five on the roll subtracts an additional minus two from the encounter threshold. The better you hide your camp, the less likely anybody's going to mess with you. You can hunt and forage, Make a survival check DC 10. On a success, you find two rations of food, and for every plus five past 10, you can find an additional two rations. On a natural one, add plus one to the encounter threshold. So the character who is hunting has to, you know, consume food as they range farther away and might attract more attention. Um... There are a lot of these different options, so I'll just sort of skim through other ones. Scout the landscape. Uh, if you, it, This is a athletics or survival check, and you can navigate the landscape, uh, or sorry, you can add to uh, abil the ability to navigate the landscape like when they pick up camp and leave. But on a natural one, you add plus one to the encounter threshold, uh, and the scouting character has to make a saving throw, a constitution saving throw, or take one level of exhaustion because they went too far away. You can cook, and on a success, you can uh, the party can gain some temporary hit points. 
that last until they take a short or long rest. But on a natural one, it's another plus one to the encounter threshold because that smell attracts people to your location. Dang old meat smell. Exactly. Group training. You can make a uh, DC 14 strength athletics check to lead your party in training and exercise. On success, the party can add half of your proficiency bonus rounded down to strength decks and constitution saving throws the following day, unless they're already proficient in that saving throw. So give yourself like a little boost. And in each of these cases, natural one means plus one to the encounter threshold. And remember that each player gets to choose one of these options. So it's totally possible, you know, you have a a party of four players and they just end up making things worse, maybe. And then finally, uh, perform. Make a DC 10 charisma performance check to entertain the party. On a success, everyone can add half your proficiency bonus to their camp checks. And, uh, And of course, you can help. Instead of performing your own task, you can you can assist a comrade in theirs, forego your camp action, and give advantage on one other role, but you have to be proficient in the skill that's being used. And then the proficient camping tasks that you can pick are crafting, uh, make a DC 14 tool proficiency check to craft a valuable item. Uh, on a natural 20, you can make a masterwork item. Sharpen a blade, make a DC 15 intelligence check to hone the party's melee weapons. Uh, This means that the party can add half your proficiency bonus to melee damage rolls until they take the next long or short rest. You can uh, do the same thing, but specifically for ranged weaponry. You can improve armor, or you can... Harness the Weave, make a DC-16 Intelligence Arcana check to tap into a wellspring of magical power. On a success... Ooh, like ley lines. Yeah. On a success, the spellcasters in your party can choose to add half your proficiency bonus rounded down to spell attack rolls for cantrips until the next short or long rest. So, I thought this was pretty neat. I mean, not the kind of thing that I would use every time, but in the comments, somebody says, like, this is a nice high complexity for a, this is a nice level of complexity for a survival-focused campaign. So if you have a real, like, survival-based, like, if I, if I had known about this when I was doing the Verdant Apocalypse campaign, this is the kind of thing that I would absolutely implement. Um, So I just thought those were some pretty cool camping rules. Uh, again, in the D&D Behind the Screen subreddit by the user Dutch Enterprises. So what you got? Right. What's your big thing? War stories. Yeah. This is another classic entry from my book that I, I gotta say, I love this book. Requiem Chronicler's Guide for Vampire. It's a vampire book, but man, it gives me ideas for all kinds of RPGs. Not just vampire ones, but it's also got great ideas for the vampire ones. Um, so war stories, gonna do a war story, whether you got vampires or not, gotta think about what kind of war story is it? We got global war, uh, global wars are fought between countless mortals and encompass both short-term tactical gains and long-term winning strategies. Kindred are often swept up because the front lines are so sweeping that there's no escape. Entire countries or continents may be plunged into turmoil and Kindred must learn to survive the or must learn to survive the upset to the status quo. 
Um, another idea they have here is if you're playing a particularly high level vampire, if you're doing like a story that is about vampire kings, basically, you could have them driving the conflict. So you could have a campaign that's about vampires who are at war or or taking part in war as like leaders. Um, we got uh, or or sorry uh. Uh, although these wars are grand in scope, most cases you will refine your focus to a narrow theater of operations. Alternatively, if the player characters are spies, uh, they could be inserted as special operatives in many different locations, or in the case of Vampire King's Chronicle, their actions could spread across the world from their centers of power. Got Hot Wars. Hot War denotes regular turmoil and danger and the constant threat of military action. The region is rife with two or more active forces who are competing for resources and attempting to wipe each other out. With modern armies, this may involve aerial bomb bombardment or artillery shelling, open firefights between large divisions of soldiers, displaced civilian populations, active mining of strategic areas, and so on. Hot wars may be civil wars or involve an intervening army, whether occupiers or liberators, on a foreign soil. Cold War suggests a tense, volatile situation that can explode at any moment, but superficially is stable. There's often, these are often regions where an outside force has imposed a strong presence to keep local warlords quiet, such as peacekeepers left to monitor a region recently under the throes of civil war. We also have the Underworld War. An underworld war may be either a hot or cold war, but is unique in that it normally involves a very small segment of the population in an otherwise stable environment. Examples are bloody mafia family battles against local law enforcement or violent biker gangs wars to control turf. Uh, in Vampire, the noir aspects allow even western cities to rot from internal corruption, allowing such outbursts of terror. There are normally two distinct spheres of underworld war the forces involved in the conflict, and the civilians who try to live their normal lives apart from the war story. Uh, got themes of war stories. Uh, war stories chronicled are by nature tales of stress, action, and chaos. Of course, the storyteller may shift the tone from bleak misery to widescreen adventure, but the style presented here suggests highlighting the horror, shock, and fatigue of warfare, contrasted with isolated moments of laughter, love, or joy. That's sort of what you get from, like, you know, Band of Brothers, that sort of thing. Um, so, the storyteller needs to decide what kind of conflict will serve as the backdrop. Will it be a hot war, a cold war, an underworld war, or a global war? Uh, not only is the category of conflict important, but per perhaps more significant is the type of conflict. Who are the various forces involved, and how are the player characters tied in? Is the battleground fought over by rival groups of mortals or kindred watch? and take cover from the sidelines? Or is it a war fought by various sides of vampires who manipulate mortal pawns into laying waste to their adversaries? Or is it the most terrifying fight of all in which the masquerade has been ripped away and mortals load up to fight kindred? Um, setting the Chronicle. We got some stuff about uh, any of the four categories of war or three types of conflict can be placed nearly anywhere in the world. Uh, Vampire is an essentially modern game. Choosing a destabilized period and region from the 1930s onward makes sense. Pre-1930, you have to do for, far more research and planning to sell the, the players on the verisimilitude of the Chronicle. Uh, 
many players will be most comfortable with a war story chronicle set closer to today. But of course, the era of World War II is so large in our collective consciousness that it is ideal for global or hot war games. Uh, for most players and storytellers, the best locations for war stories are South America, Europe, and North America. Uh, hot wars are infrequent in the first two settings, but spread rapidly when ignited, such as the Balkans and the former Soviet republics. For example, many of the dictatorships of Central and South America are rife with military actions, paramilitary groups, atrocities, disappearances, and political instability. North America, on the other hand, is likely most familiar to the majority of players, and while a hot, hot war would require a massive historical shift, an underworld war is very plausible in the world of darkness, especially in the burned-out inner cores of cities like Gary, Indiana, Detroit, Michigan, or Los Angeles, California. I'm going to set my next campaign in Gary, Indiana. I thought it was a weird show. Uh, compared to the continents mentioned above, Asia and Africa make less ideal settings for such chronicles, largely because, like shifting the setting too many years in the past, the setting becomes too exotic and unfamiliar to most players. Of course, with proper research, there's no reason not to embroil Eastern Kindred in Nam or Korea, or design a Kindred versus Kindred chronicle with the Carthians, uh, that's like, uh, left-wing vampires, battling acolytes to control the Afghanistan-Pakistan opium routes. That's a fucking kick-ass vampire idea, I think. Um, Africa also is a land with modern history of human-orchestrated atrocities. How much more beyond the pale would things be if vampires were involved? Uh, we got our vampire character options. So, three different options for combatants will shape the choices available to the players when first creating their characters. Uh, so, we got mortal, mortal versus mortal. In this scenario, the backdrop of war, whether a hot war, cold war, or underworld war, is a bloody fight between several factions of mortals. The kindred may solely be bystanders watching for the night, or may be manipulating one or more sides for their own agenda. With this option, normally all clans and covenants are allowed as character options. Uh, and it's got some examples. This, this section of the book is just full of dang old examples. Example 1. 1992, South Central Los Angeles. The concrete jungle becomes a war zone between the Crips and the Bloods. An army of Crip soldiers, a gang army, first ruts contingent of LAPD officers. The Crip gang then plaster nearby cars with rocks, bottles, and trash and pull civilians from their cars. Finally, the Crips march down Florence and Normandy, Normandy out of their homes and toward the enemy, burning the city as they march. Your coterie, or party, is caught between the two sides. Do you reach out to other kindred and shatter the hu feeble human forces? Will that result in greater retribution? Do you take advantage of the chaos, feeding indiscriminately, or do you sweat the safety, sweat the safety of your haven? Uh, where were you when L.A. burned? So an L.A. riots frickin' vampire game. It also reminds me of, uh, you know, in Warrior, when they had the big race ride in Season 2. Know that one? Yeah. Choosing sides, man. What if it was vampires in San Francisco uh, in, the, in the days in Chinatown? 2005, New York. The Chinese triad Ghost Shadows has spilled all over Luari's side, directly threatening to swallow Little Italy. The Genovese family is suddenly striking back, waging a firefight throughout the city's streets in an attempt to wrest back control of the prostitution, racketeering, and drug trade. 
Little do the mortals know, however, that the ghost shadows are actually run by a trio, trio of Hong Kong Ventru attempting to reshape the political landscape. The Genovese are ruled by a small clan of Mekhet who broke no interference. They plan to not only beat back these Asian invaders, but to destroy them utterly. Both sides keep their activities shadowed, however, and only strike through their human proxies. To move openly is to risk the wrath of the prince and the interference of his constables. I really so like how vampire gang war. Yeah, I really like how how many of these are like, you know, that that historical thing. Well, what if that, but also vampires? Then we got kindred versus kindred. This option pits several factions of vampires against each other in a terrible conflict. These divisions can be made along covenant or clan lines, but you will have to carefully lay out the acceptable acceptable character options the players in a gritty civil war the dividing lines might be even more sinister with one side backing the prince and the other the primogen child battling sire and deva fighting deva example one rickler the good the strong prince was just assassinated a vampire war is broken out throughout toronto what the destroyed prince's sheriff the a cn tower general. belongs to the dead has attempted a rebellion and murdered the deva priscus and whip Meanwhile, Rickler's two primogen have declared war on the sheriff while simultaneously bisecting the city along Young Street. To the east, the Deva primogen, who wants nothing so much as vengeance on the sheriff, rules. Meanwhile, the Venture primogen has taken hold of the west, and some suspect threatens to swallow the entire city if the Deva and Gangrel do not stop their bloodletting. Example 2. Oh man, you just get ready, we're on some fucking CanCon here. <laughs> Ottawa what? is ruled by a weak but long-established prince. Oh, my God. The sister of a harpy has accused the young coterie of the harpy's diablerie. The members of the coterie know they have been framed, but the prince is all too happy to declare a blood hunt upon them without the bother of a trial. The coterie must decide whether to flee the city or stand and fight in the after and in the aftermath, perhaps prove their innocence. Of course, if they win, it may no longer matter to any except to them. <laughs> and finally, what we if, got hang on, kindred... Tom, hang on. So what if a convoy of vampire truckers invaded Ottawa? I could really uh, vent some stress these days <laughs> firebombing those fucking vampire truckers let me tell you kindred versus mortal similar to the first style this option normally allows any clan or covenant choice for the player characters of course depending on whether this is a relatively simple matter of vampires warring with hunters or a total war between mortals and blood-sucking fiends various options may be restricted while Kindred versus Hunters is perhaps the most obvious choice, surprising your players with new reasons for the side to go to war can be more satisfying. So example one, the players, a coterie of Nosferatu, can trace their extended mortal family to a region of the former Yugoslavia. Historically, their blood has always dwelt there and had considerable wealth and property in the country. With the recent Balkan Wars, however, the surviving family members have been displaced and impoverished. Now the new ruling majority occupies the homelands. It is up to the player characters to consider retaking their ancestral lands, revenging themselves upon a strong mortal presence, and possibly restoring their mortal relatives to prosperity, or simply reclaiming the lands for themselves. So, uh, vampire vengeance for the losing side of a mortal war in that case... Example two, 
Vampire King rules from a small island nation near the border of a superpower. Although the island nation appears weak on the global scope, the vampire's age and powers allow him to make far greater waves than most would suspect. His domain is governed by a puppet dictator whom the vampire controls utterly, and the island nation's laws and customs feed back into the vampire's power base. The vampire and his minions are free to indulge themselves to their heart's content until the superpower notices them. Perhaps the island's ideology is anathema to the superpower, or the island has significant untapped resources that the superpower wishes to develop. The superpower comes into conflict with the island politically and economically to begin with. If the vampire continues to resist, and goes so far as to push back at the superpower using his myriad powers to frighten off the giant, might the superpower deploy troops and attempt to assassinate the leaders? Perhaps the superpower will arm local dissidents and urge them to stage a coup d'etat. Like something out of Jade Alliance. Also reminds me of The Suicide Squad. We got stuff about uh, feeding during the war. We got different modifiers depending how the war is affecting your uh, feeding habits. A plus five to your feeding check is a hot war. Situation is total chaos. Vessels are in abundance and the social system is completely broken down. Vampires can kill without fear or notice. Uh... Plus three, hot war. Situation is messy. Although not necessarily compliant, wounded and weak victims are co commonly found. Uh, plus one is a hot war. Civilians are hard to find due to being scattered and homes abandoned. Uh, military patrols are regular and heavy, all, although military personnel may be becoming lax due to the lack of targets. Minus one, we got cold war. Region is relatively stable and secure. Most civilians go about their daily business and try to ignore the checkpoints and armored vehicles. So it's a bit harder to feed when there's dang old checkpoints around. Minus three, Cold War. Region is superficially stable, but essentially a powder keg ready to explode at any provocation. Military and police presence is high. Civilian traveling groups and most obey curfews. It'd be real hard to feed in that situation. So we got... Concerns to keep in mind in a war story, we've got the blood supply, we've got resources. Uh, War-torn regions may be lucrative to those who have a fix on resources and supplies and sparse and impoverished for everyone else. Even kindred who do not have dots in the merit in the merit resources can temporarily boost their cash flow by looting an abandoned house selling weapons on the black market or scavenging the corpses for walks, watches and gold teeth. See that happen in some of those war shows. Wow, yeah. Um, at the same time, if a region has been the center of fighting for a long period of time, many luxuries or even basic items may be nearly impossible to acquire, no matter how much cash one has. Um, storytellers should not make resources redundant or useless, but should also remember that war often has a means of, often means a time of scarcity. Justifying the higher levels of resources much harder unless one is directly connected to the ruling party. You got havens, which is something we've talked about before. Your vampire hideout. In a hot war, situation may be radical, radically challenging. How safe does a vampire feel sleeping through the day when, surround, when the surrounding city is being bombed or if armies are staging house-to-house -house warfare through his neighborhood? Storytellers should never arbitrarily incinerate a character without giving her, him or her a chance or at least a warning, but storytellers can use some of these ideas to ratchet up the pressure in a game. What about bombardments? 
Characters should always have some warning of a bombardment attack. This could be an air raid siren or advanced knowledge of a particular target, or they could witness a nearby strike and could deduce they should seek cover immediately. Characters caught in an attack may be subject to an indirect hit, such as the building they are in collapses, or the weapon shockwave strikes them, and so on. Uh, indirect hits normally do bashing damage. We've got stuff for uh, landmines as an environmental hazard. Snipers. Uh, then we've got something that is a plot device, which it actually um, redirects us to the previous chapter in this book, which is about espionage chronicles. But it's got a cool idea, which is... Um, this is called sweating the players. Keeping the characters nervous means keeping the players involved. There are a few tricks that help ensure that the tension ratchets up over the course of a chronicle, one thing that seems to work very efficiently is something called sweating the players. Now, it's funny because when I started reading this, I was thinking about your thing in Verdant Apocalypse, how it was like every small thing has to be like a skill check and like little things can lead to big, big, big consequences. You yeah, know? exactly. But in this one, the technique is simple. To make sure the characters are focusing on the pressure the characters are feeling, the storyteller sets up a series of roles that represent whether or not the characters are able to stay sharp. Set on a track of increasingly increasing difficulty, represented by increased penalties to the role, these sweat roles won't determine whether or not the characters are capable of a task, but whether rather whether or not they're capable of stepping up to the plate before the task even begins. Always tell the player how many roles are involved and how the penalties are going to apply before the sweating begins. It will invoke tension immediately, but set out clear boundaries so that the players know you aren't just arbitrarily increasing their difficulties. The players ought to be caught up in the suspense of the task, eager to get from one role to the next. To play this tool to the limit, it's best for the storyteller to pause between each role, taking time to describe the scene in atmospheric detail. So there's an example here. John, and this is really funny because of the names and like the way they named the characters in the example. John the Deva and Mary the Ventru are walking Harold the Nosferatu <laughs> into a trap. Is he uh, he's a character from what we do in the shadows, right? So they're leading Harold the Nosferatu into a trap. This is our John new roommate, Mary. Harold. Say hello, Harold. John, <sighs> John and Mary have been masquerading as his allies for a while now. The time has come to sacrifice him for their mission. John and Mary both have decent humanity scores. This is the first time they've ever done anything like this. As the trio walk down a hallway toward the prearranged ambush, the storyteller tells John and Mary's players that they are going to have to make four resolve plus composure rolls each. The first will have no penalty. The second will have a minus one penalty. The third will have a minus one, one penalty. And the fourth will have a minus two penalties. The penalties, he explains, will represent the rising feelings of guilt and fear they are both experiencing. If they fail a roll, their characters will hesitate, and that may tip Harold off. Between each roll, to maximize the effect, the storyteller describes the echo of their footsteps in the empty hallway, the buzzing of the fluorescent lights overhead, and the strange way Harold keeps twitching his eyes to the left. A, a habitual tick, but it's making John and Mary nervous. One thing to keep an eye on, sweating the players may provide for realism, but if you do it too often, you may end up angering the players in your game. 
Remember, this is supposed to apply to high-pressure tasks only, not average everyday chores. Overwhelming nerves make sense under the threat of final death, but a character who has trouble gathering up the courage to just walk down the street on an average night is crippled. Um, we've also got a table here uh, for the war stories, going back to this, um, which is uh, Shell Shock. When harmed by mundane weapons, kindred are norm normally more prone to anger frenzies than fear frenzies. However, when the weapons are high-powered, explosions are close by, or risk of discovery suddenly very real, characters should test for fear frenzy. So they get a shell shock roll, and it's a fear frenzy, and here's the modifiers. Uh, you need one success if a high-powered weapon is used nearby. You need two successes if you realize you've just entered a minefield. Uh, you need three successes if you're targeted by a high-powered weapon, such as a sniper shot. You need four successes if you are in close proximity to incendiary weapons, uh, such as a firebomb. Uh, you need five successes if you're indirectly targeted by a heavy weapon, such as a tank's gun. And you need seven successes if you're directly targeted by a heavy weapon, such as an art artillery strike. Um, you get a plus three dice bonus if you are in heavy cover. You get a plus one if you have knowledge of the opponent's position. You have a plus one uh, if the uh, attacks are coming. Wait, that doesn't seem right. I feel like it should be minus one if the attacks are coming from all sides. And uh, if you have taken lethal damage previously, it's minus three. Hmm. Then we got something that I think is like relatively unprecedented for one of these White Wolf books. It's called Horrors of War. Uh, Vampire the Requiem is a game of modern personal horror. This is what I'm always having an issue with, is anytime they bring up this personal horror, they're about to tell me to do something bad as a storyteller. Yeah. But this is the opposite. Oh. This is the opposite. It's also about being the monsters and deciding whether to do terrible things and exist with those choices or resist those urges to do terrible things and exist with those and exist with those choices instead. War story chronicles comp complicate this matter because human history of war is littered with atrocities. How did you, how do you judge a monster in wartime? International conventions and treaties attempt to map out acceptable and unacceptable behavior in military actions, but those concepts are too abstract to be particularly useful to a storyteller on the ground. Of course, depending on how, how harsh your world of darkness already is, you may not find the horrors of war beyond the pale. But remember, despite knowing we are playing in the world of darkness, some scenes, actions, and themes are potentially too grim and haunting for players. They need to write this in every vampire book. They need to yeah. have this caveat more often. Uh, yeah, seriously. This is what we've been saying. War stories are excellent for showing the beast that lies in the breast of mortals as a counterpoint to the nightly torment of the kindred. Yet, as undead, players may feel the need to be the meanest sons of bitches in the world. You should not make the players feel that they have to outdo the cruelty that humans do to each other in war. To properly set the tone of a War Stories Chronicle, consider incorporating some of the following elements. Uh, but again, I would really highlight that thing it just said about, like, some of these, you know, do this with, you know, use your judgment. Because, my God. Um, so, uh, 
Biological and chemical weapons experiments. Perhaps do best documented in World War II, armies have rounded up prisoners and used them as guinea pigs in biological and chemical weapons experiments. Scientists with no moral compulsions about designing such weapons uh, logically, it says in quotes, conclude that the effects must be tested on humans. Such death laboratories require physicians, microbiologists, veterinarians, zoologists, plant biologists, as well as guards, administrators, etc., Clinical tests are performed on prisoners of war interned in camps or prisons. Field tests may involve distributing deadly agents and food, lacing water wells or res reservoirs, injecting viruses into unsuspecting populations who believe the inoculations to be preventative, spraying various weapons on villages, towns, livestock, and so on. Since the 1970s, developments in the production, storage, and weaponization of certain bacteria, viruses, and toxins has become much easier. Note, Kindred are rarely, if ever, affected by biological or chemical weapons, but they can become plague dogs if exposed, meaning that basically, you know, they might not feel the immediate effects of a, you know, biological attack, but their feeding may spread the weapon from, you know, may spread the contagion from person to person. So that's one thing right off the bat that's openly horrific that you can have in a war game. Another thing, child soldiers. And I want to actually zoom in on something. They actually have like an example here that's really interesting. Um, so, although a child, so child is normally no threat to a vampire, how will your players react when they witness a swarm of 10 or 11-year-olds armed with machetes, fishing harpoons, and kitchen utensils? So we got a sample scene facing down Donald Duck. So you'd roll strength or presence plus intimidation opposed by the target's strength or presence plus intimidation. Donald Duck must get a bonus to intimidation because he doesn't wear pants. This is a sweating the player scenario in which the roles get progressively more difficult as the character attempts to intimidate a child soldier who is backed up by his companions. There are three rolls to be made with a plus one modifier for the player's first roll, an unmodified second roll, and a minus one on the third roll. Here's the scene. The characters need to cross a checkpoint manned by a number of young soldiers. Reports claim that a ceasefire is in effect, but everyone knows that the slightest provocation will have guns firing again. The character sees a group of eight young boys, the eldest no more than 13, playing a game of soccer in front of a machine gun nest that overlooks the road. Bayoneted rifles lie haphazardly at hand, propped up against chain-link fence topped with razor wire. As you get closer, a small dark-skinned boy wearing flip-flops and a faded Donald Duck t-shirt stops short. His foot is on the ball. You realize that they are playing with a human skull. Donald Duck, as his friends calls him, stares you down while his companions drift toward the rifles. The stare-down is an opposed role using the character's intimidation skill plus the higher of her, his or her strength or presence attribute. On a dramatic failure, Donald Duck and his companions see you as a threat and all rush to attack. At least one soldier goes for the machine gun nest. On a failure, Donald Duck barks at you, get the hell out of here. He is reinforced by his buddies snatching up their rifles and aiming them at you. On a success, Donald Duck holds your gaze for a very, very long moment, then finally releases a deep breath. He jerks his head at you, monitoring you, motioning for you to cross the checkpoint. When you step forward, his buddies tense, but no one breaks rank. Exceptional success. Donald Duck stares at you dead in the eye. Finally, he breaks into a smile. 
laughing, he runs up and checks you out and skips along with you. His buddies follow amongst you and clear the checkpoint for you to pass through. They laugh and banter and ask for chocolates and cigarettes. That is a tense scenario, man. That is a really good example of how that scenario, that could go any way. That could go any which way. I was anticipating How do you it. know how you're going to go through I was anticipating it becoming that scene from the movie Extraction where <laughs> Chris Hemsworth clobbers all those street kids. Oh, man. Yeah. Been a while since I watched that one. I guess you've seen it since. I want to say I uh, saw that other, like six months ago. Other horrors of war. We got uh, collective pu- punishment. Um, it says concentration camps. I don't know. I, w- I don't know if I go in there. That sounds pretty hard. That that sounds a bit too far. I don't know how you do that. Um, we got death squads. Uh, death squads are renowned for scare tactics, kidnappings, disappearances, and executions. Well-trained death squad could be as threatening to a kindred as any group of hunters. Similarly, a vampire lord might have their own death squads, perhaps ghouls used to terrorize the local population and bring vessels who are then disappeared. Uh, we've got safety zones. This is uh, another point about war stories. Safety zones are off-limits areas that are not to be targeted by any military force. Uh, safety zones may be known as protected areas, safe havens, secure humanitarian areas, or security corridors. They're large regions up to the size of a village or town in some cases, but unless an outside force provides military protection, they become a paper shield. Safety zones become areas of peace for kindred. Even during the horror of war, the laws forbidding hunting in a peaceful zone of vampires are maintained. Of course, as NATO troops are needed to ensure a safety of civilian and cultural heritage spots, the kindred elysium must be enforced by kindred with power. If you're an enemy of the prince, do not expect him to necessarily respect his own edicts. And then the last point before they have another uh, full-scale chronicle idea, which is about uh, a cartel war in Tijuana called Mexican Snow, they also have a note about how it's important to establish uh, what your character's investment is in the war. Basically, what provides the passion that uh, gets the players invested in the conflict in the first place. They have to have something, whether it's uh, maybe it's someone mortal who's connected to them from their their time when they were alive. Maybe you know it's the connections of the vampires, their whether it's their party or their sire, or uh, you know maybe maybe it's something like maybe it's the vampire, but they still uh, have some level of uh, national commitment. Maybe going back to what we do in the shadows, there are Nazi vampires. And in World War II, after that, being a Nazi. being a vampire (laughs) being a Nazi vampire (laughs) so yeah he had to get out of there so any thoughts McGill I I, my main thought as you're going through all of this is again to reiterate that I've played very little vampire in my time but man this just goes deeper and deeper. There are so many, there are depths to vampire I never knew existed. Maybe I owe it to myself to read more of the source books and get into it more. I mean, really what I've got to do is just after Ashes Against the Grain, I think I got to run a vampire. Game. I guess so. I think it just comes down to that. Um, also, an idea I had there when I was reading about the like 
safe areas and whatnot. You know the comic DMZ. I know the I know the logo, but I've never actually read it. Oh man, I own a couple of the volumes of it. It's it's pretty great. It's basically it's you know uh, United States. There's a civil war. Uh, Manhattan becomes the demilitarized zone between the two sides. And uh, it's about a journalist who ends up living in the demilitarized zone. And, like, there's a great story arc that's just about uh, someone steals his press pass. And, like, without a press pass, he's just, he's, he's got nothing. He's got no, he can't go anywhere. He's, uh, he's oh, man, hmm. it's crazy. So then he has to chase a guy all across the demilitarized zone. Then uh, at one point, he uh, finds that there's, like, this group of, like, uh, sort of, like, a militia has formed in the New York Metropolitan Zoo to protect the animals and keep them alive. So uh, there's like a zoo faction. That's cool. DMZ, good comic. Also, could be cool to do a vampire DMZ campaign. Ah. That's what I'm thinking. Anyway, all these things. All these things. Yeah, so who knows? Maybe what I'm in the mood... I mean, lately what I've actually been thinking is that what I might want to do is, like, a Scion World War II game. Well, I mean, because they have it right yeah. on that Scion campaign. Yeah, we went right? over that stuff. Like, yeah, like, I was thinking about, like, imagine doing, like, Night Witches, but, like, all the girls are, like, descendants of the Baba Yaga, whether they realize it or not. It's a good idea. That'd be sick. Anyways, this has been episode 96, recorded on the 8th of February, 2022. We've got over war stories, war in a sewer, and uh, then we uh, took some, we, we enjoyed our freedom in the verse, is what happened. Heck yeah. And then we went camping a little bit. That's a way of enjoying your freedom. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes uh message us you can follow us on facebook comparing campaign on facebook and if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com where i mentioned we got a map of my D setting of drail and uh we post uh updates that have all the little things we talked about pictures videos all that so uh other than that um Level. Who knows what it's like to be in a war? Not me. Level up. Get your ding. Man, Alzaces got their last ding ages ago, unless you count epic boons. Those are dings. They count. Well, I guess they keep getting dings then. Mm-hmm.